Okay. So here's the question. And for our visitors, we're in the middle of studying 1 Corinthians. So this is like the 18th week. Is 1 Corinthians chapter 5 meant to be read as a precedence for a universal dictate on contemporary church discipline? In other words, are we to read this chapter and form a textbook case for excommunication of sinners in today's church? Or, is it possible that this is an ad hoc case, a specific and unique situation that Paul is dealing with, and the greater truth to be discovered here has very little to do with church discipline and everything to do with Paul's greater theology, the theology of the cross. And how as individuals and as a community of self-professed followers of Jesus Christ, we are supposed to live out that follow. <clears throat> I believe it is the latter. I suggest chapter 5 was never intended by St. Paul to be used as a guidebook for contemporary church discipline. And in order to support that suggestion, I'm going to employ a different teaching style this morning. 99% of the time, you get my narrative teaching style. Today, it's going to be a very simple, point-by-point, -point systematic defense of why I believe chapter 5 is an ad hoc case and holds much deeper truth than how we are simply to excommunicate and why we are simply to excommunicate. Okay? So here we go. Number one. Paul is not Captain Obvious. I don't know if Captain Obvious really looks like that, but that's the best picture I can find. <laughs> okay, let's consider the sin. The guy is sleeping with his stepmother. Now, Paul reminds us that in this society, this is so grotesque a sin that the pagans do not even tolerate it. Okay? So, both Jews and pagans have no tolerance for this behavior. Jewish law is very clear. Leviticus 18, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. Greco-Roman law is very clear. This is from the Institutes of Gaius. Neither can I marry her, who has aforetime been my mother-in-law, or stepmother, or daughter-in-law, or stepdaughter. And even Cicero, the Roman philosopher and statesman, wrote this about the marriage of a woman to her son-in-law. Oh, to think of the woman's sin, unbelievable, unheard of, and all experience, save for this single instant. And this pagan disgust for this particular sin was from a culture that was decidedly not puritanical when it came to sexual mores. He quotes Demosthenes, an ancient Greek statement, who comments on that culture's view of human sexuality. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. This is not our society. We are not here. Now, I know there are some people who say, oh, yes, we are. That's what's wrong with America. We have become so perverted, we are just like the Greco-Roman world. I disagree. I will allow that certainly there seems to be a macro-level acceptance of all sorts of 
deviations of human sexuality. And certainly our film and our TV and our art and our music industries all seem to celebrate that. But the idea of watching or reading things and having a tolerance for them in the art world is entirely different than it being reality across the fabric of a culture. So, for myself, I don't have any non-Christian friends, non-Christian, who would tolerate this on a daily basis, whose spouse can have all the lovers they want and visit all the prostitutes they want and still have a relationship at home. Okay? So I don't believe our society is anywhere near this sexually deviant that they were. And they didn't tolerate what this guy was doing. But even if you think I'm wrong, and you think American society has become like this, then that still supports my first point. This guy's sin was so grotesque that even a very sexually tolerant society frowned upon it. What Christian community today is going to tolerate a person actively involved in such a grotesque form of sexual behavior that even a very sexually tolerant society doesn't agree with? Does Paul really need to tell us that? I don't think so. And that's my second point. Paul is not Captain Obvious. Continue. And this is the last time, honest. The rest of the points do not have this name. I promise you. Let's consider the supporting community. You have become arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. They are arrogant and are not mourning. Paul's use of mourning here is a reference to that profound sense of pain and loss and anguish that we feel when we come face to face with very real sin in our own lives or in the lives of those we love, especially when we see the devastating consequences of it. This comes from Paul's own Jewish background. In the profound sense of God's holiness that the Jewish tradition offers us. Fee writes, When Isaiah sees the exalted Lord, and hears the song, Holy, 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 he bows in deep personal and national repentance. And in such moments, the removal of sin is a natural consequence. Thus, Paul is not here dealing with church discipline as such. Rather, out of his Jewish heritage... He is expressing what should be the normal consequences of being the people of God who are called to be his holy people. It is this lack of sense of sin, and therefore of any ethical consequences to their spiritual life, to their life in the spirit, that marks the Corinthian brand of spirituality as radically different from that which flows out of the gospel of Christ crucified. And it is this Corinthian spirituality that is the problem. They are arrogant. Now, if you were here last week, you know exactly what that looks like, because we spent all last week talking about what their spiritual arrogance was. Notice Paul's words in chapter 6. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Now, this is interesting. This is something people will often quote as though Paul said it. Paul didn't say, I have the right to do anything. Please understand that. 
Yes, it's a verse. He's quoting back to the Corinthians what they wrote to him. Remember, 1 Corinthians is the second letter he wrote. The first letter, we don't know where it is. It's, it's not part of our canon. It seems in that first letter, he must have been writing about sexual ethics. And the letter they sent him, they were like, oh no. No, you're wrong. Because we have the right to do anything. Because we are free in Christ. And Paul says in this letter, okay, you have the right to do anything, but, and then he qualifies it. Okay. So what Paul is most likely getting at here is not that some of the believers in the community are tolerating this guy's sin. It's not that they are turning a blind eye, oh, we don't want to get involved. No. It's that they are actually pointing to it as justifiable given their own understanding of Christian spirituality. See, their spiritual arrogance was so twisted that they thought they were above the physical world. Remember, they spoke with the tongues of angels. They thought they were angels. The body was insignificant. Paul's going to deal with this later when he has to take them to task for denying bodily resurrection. And Paul says, no, you can't do whatever you want with your body. But they were teaching they could. So, in what case of contemporary church discipline that you have ever witnessed or been a part of has not only there been someone engaged in a sin so grotesque that not even the non-Christian culture tolerates it, but that many in that Christian community are actually teaching it is okay based on some twisted Christian doctrine. Please. Even in the Roman Catholic Church, and those you know I love the Roman Catholic Church, I have deep respect for it, and I am very thankful to God for it. But even in their darkest history of priests with pedophilia, they did not once justify it by saying, well, they can do that because they're free in Christ. Yes, they swept it under the rug and they'll have to answer for that. But they never tried to justify it. We have been studying 1 Corinthians for 17 weeks. We have seen how brilliant Paul is. We have seen this is a masterpiece of writing, a masterful defense of his theology, and all of a sudden he's going to turn into Captain Obvious? Even here at Cana, where we invite everybody and teach grace and mercy and forgiveness, if someone came here, not only engaged actively in a grotesque form of sin, but was trying to teach that it's okay because it's free in Christ, I think even we're going to agree, we're going to have to say, buddy, I don't think this is the community for you. Do we need chapter 5 for this? Number 3. It's about community. Paul's focus throughout this chapter is the community, not the individual. Read it closely. 
He talks directly at the community. The guy is mentioned in second person. Paul is furious with the community for justifying a grotesque behavior with some twisted understanding of Christianity and for allowing this spiritual arrogance to divide the community. Legitimate church discipline is never about the individual alone. It is always about the community being split apart by excessive behaviors. But what passes today for church discipline is more about punishing one person for their individual private sin that has little or no dividing effects on the community at large. Number four. Christianity has been around for 2,000 years. The church is just beginning. Literally, it was brand new when Paul had to deal with this situation. How the Christian world functioned in Corinth was a window into Christianity for all the world. Literally, literally. Corinth was a massive trading and hub of commerce. People from all over the world went through Corinth. Okay? Paul understood how important it was to create lines of distinction between how Christians worshipped and lived and all the other religions, sects, temple, S-E-C-T-S, temple followers worshipped and lived. It is a very exciting and monumental time of the birth of a new religion where the actual rules were very blurry. Read Acts of the Apostles. Even the Apostles could not agree on what ethical rules they should be throwing at the Gentiles. Read it closely. That's what was going on at this time. We do not live in a time like that. Now I know, no, now I know, no, I, I, I know in most Christian churches, no one I know is trying to blend the worship of Jesus with other gods and making sexual immorality part of that worship. Yes, I know, occasionally in the news we'll hear about the fringe group found in the desert, you know, one guy and 60 women and he's trying to explain his Christianity. Okay, fringe. But the minor and simple abuses of God's law that tend to erupt from time to time in Christian churches will not lead to all of Christianity <coughs> condoning or celebrating or incorporating them into the way church is done or into Christian lifestyle. Number five, and this is the big one. Computer didn't even want to go there. <laughs> what about the rest? If we are to take 1 Corinthians 5 at face value and without any knowledge of Corinth, Corinthian culture, language, Paul's own context, and make instant applications, then we are in trouble. Because verse 11 indicts all of us. 
But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Seriously, what American Christians can honestly say, honestly, that they are not guilty of being one of these people? Who here can honestly say you are not guilty of this? We're all idolaters. We all have idols. Just think about what you would never want taken away from you. Bam. Idol. We all slander. We all gossip. That word slander includes gossiping. Oh, sometimes we hide it under the nice guise of, well, we're praying for that person. No, we're not. We're just gossiping about that person. And greed? Unless we have taken a vow of poverty to live in total harmony with the world around us, we are all greedy. In fact, and I say this to myself, I am pretty sure that is going to be the biggest surprise of all when God comes back. That he will be explaining in no uncertain terms that his church and his people in America have always been greedy. And speaking of greed, Paul says here that we should have nothing to do with greedy people. Yet, in a few chapters, he's going to make it quite clear that part of the problem at the communion table was greed. Do you know what would go on at the communion table in Corinth? The rich people would be in one nice room in the house eating the good food. The poor people would be in another room, maybe even outside, waiting for leftovers or being served something else. How's that for Christianity? And yet, when we get there, Paul doesn't excommunicate all of them. He just tells them to change. Make a big change. Number six. It does not work anymore. This kind of discipline Paul is laying out in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians does not work in our world. At least the way Paul intends for it to work. So if you're going to quote me, make sure you quote that qualification. You see, for Paul, the discipline of removing someone from community was intended to save them. To change their lives. It was not intended to be punitive. It was not intended to be punishing for punishing sake alone. It was intended to be restorative. It was intended to be redeeming. It was intended to be transforming. See, firstly, what needs to be understood about Corinthian culture is that the shame-pride thing was huge. Huge. To be excommunicated from a community, and there were lots of communities and organizations in Corinth, to be excommunicated from a community would have been so shameful that people would have rather have died than experienced that shame. That's what a shame culture is like. Pride shame cultures are not easy to understand. Remember, what was it, four or five years ago, all the Toyota recalls? And do you know how many upper echelon CEOs of Toyota over in Japan committed suicide during that time? 
That's what shame culture does. The shock of it alone to this guy would probably have had the desired effect almost immediately. True repentance and true restoration. But in our culture, shame, shame doesn't work. Shame someone in our culture and they just become more committed to what they're doing. It's like the father that tells the teenage daughter, you look like a tramp. Go change your clothes because you can see her belly. She ain't running downstairs. Change her clothes. She's going out. Comes home five hours later, now her belly button's pierced. She's got a tattoo that says, Dad, doesn't get it. Shame doesn't work in our society. And that was nothing from my life. <laughs> <laughs> Although she does have a tattoo that says, Dad, doesn't get it. <laughs> secondly, secondly, there was only one church in Corn. Yeah, they met in different houses and they had different groups. But you get kicked out, you're done. Today, you just go find another church to keep sitting in. really want to follow Paul's intention here in chapter 5? And I think we should. See, I'm not dismissing Paul here at all. I'm dismissing a contemporary understanding of Paul, an application of Paul, which I have seen destroy lives. <coughs> if we really want to follow Paul's intention here, we should live into people's lives who are caught up in sin. Find ways to engage them help them through. David, I've been your brother for 20 years. And what you're doing is killing you. It's killing your family. And it's ripping this community apart. How can I help? That would be redemptive. But of course, you see, like we've talked about a lot with theology, Christian theology. It's so much easier. Oh, no, no. Just tell, tell the church leaders. Just kick them out. Rules are easier than living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's harder to live into people's lives and love them when it's messy, isn't it? And that leads nicely to number seven. It's about redemption. Now, we're going to spend all of next week on this, number seven. It's about redemption. So I hope you come back. Because we're going to be diving into this verse. You have to read this verse this way. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. We're going to look at this next week in detail, and I hope you're here for it. To get you excited about coming back, I'll say this. Even if we were to have a person guilty, exactly as this person, Paul, seems to be excommunicating is, then we are called to do as Christ said, treat him as a sinner and a tax collector. 
And we all know how Jesus treated them. He made them his friends and he invited them back in. And isn't that the end game anyway? That all become saved? For God loves all of us and it is the Father's will that none should perish and that God died for everyone? (coughs) See, I think this is what Paul had in mind when he wrote chapter 5. He was saying, listen people, as long as this guy thinks this is what God wants, he is missing the truth of Jesus. Let him know and understand this is far outside of God's intent for his life so that maybe he will come back to saving grace. A textbook case for excommunication of sinners in today's church? I think not. I think instead it is a brilliant and challenging defense of Paul's greater theology, the theology of the cross, and how as individuals and a community of self-professed followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be living out that follow. May God help us all.